you will know that this is the middle talk in a series of three. Someone just said to me before, you're doing a trilogy. Who knew? It's not Star Wars. But uh, we're doing a trilogy. This is the middle talk in a series of three on the subject of shame. I have to confess to you that I've struggled this week with this talk. And I think the reason for that is that this is a topic that I've been reflecting on for a long time. And uh, the danger is that if I've been reflecting for a long time and you're coming to this cold, the challenge is somehow for me to distill all of those varied thoughts and make something coherent for you to hear and be challenged and encouraged by. So uh, so uh, this, this week's been a little bit of a struggle, but uh, I've known the Lord's help. So let, let me begin with this. My aim today is to help us to see a great contrast. Um, In a way, I feel a little bit like one of those football commentators on Sky Sports who's introducing the big football match. He's introducing the two teams that are going to play each other, and they have a long rivalry that goes back many years. I want to set before you this afternoon two opposite sides that are effectively at war and they've been at war they've beat these two sides have been at each other's throats for centuries and uh, these are the two sides let me introduce them to you it's not a football game but here's the conflict I, I shame on the one hand and love On the other hand, these two things have been at each other's throats since time immemorial. I want you to say this afternoon that shame is a pervasive and destructive and persistent influence all around us, even within our own hearts. And the only thing that can defeat shame is love. Now, you know that I I like to think in pictures. I I don't know. People talk about being visual learners nowadays. I've no idea what kind of a learner I was at school. They didn't even talk about that then. But I like to think in pictures. And uh, so I want to begin this afternoon in a slightly strange place by showing you a video compilation. And this video compilation is a video of... Famous films in which there have been scenes where a door has been slammed in someone's face. It's only about a minute and a half long. It's just a compilation of door slamming. All of these doors slamming are from films. So as we watch, maybe you can see how many films you'll recognize. But we'll watch the video and then I'll explain why. Let's... uh... is over. Sell crazy someplace else. We're all stocked up here. Oh, I'm doing fine. Get out! Please let me in. 
Now. vacation on there. That was a joke because he was looking for the German number six. So there was, there was a little joke in there. Um, why do I begin with that video? Um, I think few things illustrate shame better than having the door slammed in your face. The shock of it, uh, the sense of being on the outside the fact that someone else on the inside is angry with you and impatient with you. But there's another reason why I think that this image is pertinent to our reflections on shame, and it's this. Doors generally don't slam on their own. Someone is actually doing the slamming. And I want to suggest to you in this talk that... Um, Shame is not simply a neutral thing. There is an evil intent behind shame. I think this is a very reasonable way for us to portray the Bible story. Um, it is true that love was there in the beginning. And then shame came along and slammed the door on it. And ever since then, shame has continued to be deliberately destructive. Shame is always seeking to close doors, shut things down, shut even life itself down. This kind of shame is at work in our hearts, in our marriages, in our streets, in our workplaces, in our families. This is the kind of shame that isolates us and sets us against one another. So the point I want to get across to you, I suppose, this afternoon, is that you and I are in a war, and shame is in fact a weapon that is being wielded against us. One writer claims that all that we do, all that we do, parenting, pastoring, farming, playing sport, carpentry, police work, structural engineering, all that we do is done in response to love and shame competing for our attention, wrestling for authority over us. Can we... Is this... There we go. And then he says this, every minute of every day, 
we choose between shame and love. This is the shame that closes doors. And we're speaking of the kind of love that will open them again. I I suppose my main thesis this afternoon is that we cannot overcome shame unless we as individuals are nourished by love. So I want to set before you that contrast, shame and love. And my question to you all this afternoon is going to be simply this. Which soundtrack are you listening to in your own life? Are you listening to the soundtrack of shame? Or are you listening to the soundtrack of love? So, where will we uh, begin? Well, we have begun, but where will we really begin? That was just a little introduction. You've got um, a little sermon outline um, conveniently on the back of your sheet there. And uh, where we're going to get to, you'll see, I'd like to take you back to Genesis chapter 3 in a moment. And we're going to see how that ancient serpent, the devil, wielded shame as a weapon to slam the door in Adam and Eve's face. But before we get to Genesis in a moment, I want to give you some glasses to wear, to look through, as before we get to Genesis. Think of it like wearing 3D glasses before you go and see a film. We're all in the queue at uh, Cineworld, and we're going to see Genesis the movie, and we're going to see in glorious multicolour, the door slams, surround sound, but first we need to put our 3D glasses on. So I want to give you two things that I think are true before we go to Genesis. Two examples that I hope will establish the fact that we need joy in our lives. Example number one is to do with parenting. So let's move on. Children need joy, not shame. In the last few years, there's been a lot of research into how children develop emotionally. And... uh, This will be relevant to those of you who are parents. There's a few of you. Um, One key issue is the formation of secure relationships. And uh, perhaps we could draw it as a triangle like this. There you go. Joy at the top. Security and curiosity. Children need security in order to be able to be curious. To be able to explore the world, it is a tricky job, I think, for parents. I I know this because I've tried to do it. It's a tricky job for parents to provide the kind of loving environment where there's both safety on the one hand and freedom to be curious on the other hand. That's, That's not an easy thing to do. And people who research these things believe that the emotion that is the glue that holds all of that together is the emotion of joy. Children need to know that they are pleasing to their parents. We all long to hear, don't we? I love you. Well done. The joy, the joyful anticipation of approval from those 
we love is essential. We need to know when we're little, we need to know all of our lives that our parents appreciate us, they value us, they love us. In other words, the joy is there because we're loved. I think we can appreciate what would happen if this triangle was leaning to one side or the other. We can appreciate that if as parents we kept our kids safe and secure, but never gave them space to be curious, that we know, don't we, that that would be unhelpful. But on the other hand, if we let our children do whatever they want and we never imposed any limits on them, that would be equally potentially damaging for them. So parents, in a way, are constantly doing this little kind of a dance. Sometimes coming near to reassure a child. Sometimes being a little bit more distant so the child has got space. There's a little dance going on. And that's how a growing child learns how to self-regulate these emotions and grow up with a secure base and that's what psychiatrists talk about when they talk about secure attachment. I, you all know this. What we're all aiming at, if we're parents, is for our children to grow up knowing that they're loved and secure so that they can go out and live life and take risks and be creative and curious. This is a great idea. We, we know that often it can go wrong. So how is that necessary anticipation of joy replaced by shame? Let me just try and, um, it's not a digression, but let, just bear with me here while I try and explain how this works. I, I, I found this fascinating reflecting on this. I'm going to give you a little bit of psychology. Um, apparently, I didn't know this, as human beings, we have two sides to our nervous system. One of them is called the sympathetic nervous system. And it's associated with action, okay? My own system is quite heightened just at the moment, talking to you. This is what governs our fight or flight mechanism. This is related to something being enjoyable or exciting, and some people compare it to the accelerator on a car. You can picture that idea. This is, this is life being lived with all the anticipation it brings with it. The other system is called the parasympathetic nervous system. This system is like a brake. This is the system that I'll be enjoying later when I finish doing this. <laughs> this is the system that slows us down, brings us back to rest, helps us to regain our balance if something extreme has happened to us. Here's the deal. Every, day, every moment of every day, our brains are constantly acting like a clutch, sometimes speeding up, sometimes slowing down. This, they, we, we do it without even thinking about it. But when a child is very little, a parent has to help the child to self-regulate those features. 
So when a child wanders into a potentially dangerous situation, minding its own business, that's the accelerator working. Curiosity is aroused. The child's senses are salivating at the prospect of finding something new. And then the parent says, no. That's the break going on. Children need that kind of parental intervention in order to learn how to be safe. But here's, here's the thing. This model is how psychiatrists understand where shame begins. The emotion that we call shame begins when these two systems crash. I want you to get this. It's important. So again, imagine a child minding its own business, anticipating a happy time, looking forward to some perceived good thing, and then a parent comes slamming down on them angrily and says, how many times have I told you to not do that? The accelerator's on full blast, and suddenly the brake comes on. That crash is like a car crashing into a wall. There's no clutch. What that feels like in the child is a door slamming in their face. You get the link? The disorientating feeling of shame is a hard one for a child to negotiate. Normally, These things happen in the context of a loving relationship with a parent. But when that is a a crash constantly, the anticipated joy of secure attachment is replaced with shameful feelings. I'm not enough. I'm not loved. I'm not valued. That is the result of a door being slammed in the face. That's one idea. Can you, can you keep that in mind and park that? We'll park that over here somewhere. Let me give you another thing that I want you to keep in mind. That's, that's parenting and children. This is no less true in the spiritual realm because we all as human beings are created for joy not shame let me try and just open this up for a couple of minutes Uh, during this past week I was reading a very interesting sermon that was preached by C.S. Lewis you know C.S. Lewis he wrote the uh, Narnia stories He preached this sermon in 1942, so that means right in the middle of the Second World War, and the sermon was entitled, The Weight of Glory. That's the weight, not the weight, the the weight, my accent you see, being from Lancashire, the weight of glory. And C.S. Lewis asked the question, what is glory? And he suggests some people think that glory is being really famous. Lots of people know you. Fame is what glory is. Lewis doesn't like that because he feels that it seems to him 
It's too competitive and too selfish. It, when I was reading this sermon, it made me think of Facebook. Um, and many of you will know this. You know, when you post something on your Facebook wall and, uh, and people begin to like it and the likes start to clock up, you know, and if it's a significant thing, you know, you might even get to 10 likes. Or if you're not me, you might get to over 100. And it, there's something quite intoxicating and you're checking Facebook, oh, who's liked? And it's 10, 20, 30, maybe 100, 200, who knows? There's something intoxicated about the fact that some other people, sometimes random other people, know something about you, like something about you, appreciate something about you. I think if Lewis was still alive in our Facebook era, I think he would say that glory is not being famous in that way. I think Lewis would say, true glory, imagine this. Imagine God was your Facebook friend. And you post something on your wall, and God clicks the like button. Imagine, that that's not lots and lots of random people. Lewis suggests in his sermon that underneath all of our human desires is this longing, deep, profound longing, that in the end, God would look at us and notice us and like us. Interestingly, just going back to the first thing that we parked over here, Lewis argues that nothing is more obvious than this in a child. What brings most joy to a child is it not to please the one they love. To please the one our hearts love. Ultimate glory, ultimate joy is for us to know that God is smiling on us like a loving parent. And I want to suggest to you with, the, with this second example that our lives, your lives, my life will be filled with joy or with shame depending on what God, our Father, thinks of us. Lewis writes this in his sermon, in the end, that face with a capital F, that face, God's face, his face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned on each of us with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting a shame that can never be cured or disguised. You see what Lewis is saying there? How God views you will either fill you with joy or fill you with shame. It is possible in life that we can find some joy when we see beauty in things. For example, in nature, or in objects, or in music. But the ultimate experience of joy is being found in being known and appreciated by the one we love. 
This is one of the major problems with atheism. You can love and admire the material universe as much as you like, but it is not capable of loving you back. It isn't capable of being pleased with you. And I think that truth is something that haunts our modern culture. What we long for deep down is not to be treated as strangers. What we long for is not to be on the outside, ignored, unnoticed. I'd already been thinking about the idea of shame being like a door slamming in your face. And then I read Lewis say this about glory. He claims this, ultimate glory means a good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement and welcome into the very heart of things. Listen to this. The door on which we have been knocking all of our lives will open at last. Oh man, I read that and thought... The door on which we've been knocking all of our lives will open at last. This is what we long for. Now, we've been in the queue and we've put our glasses on with those two examples. I want you to bear those things in mind and I want you to come back with me to the Garden of Eden. You've all got your glasses on now. We're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. Here we go. What do we see first in the early chapters of Genesis? It's this same triangle of joy, security, and creativity or curiosity. Adam and Eve know the smile of God upon their lives. And that means that they can be secure in the knowledge of his favour and curious, creative. Just turn with me in the Bible to Genesis again. We're going to go back to Genesis 1. And uh, let me just point you to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It's uh, on page 4, if you've got one of the red Bibles in the pews here. Here's what the author of Genesis says. Genesis 1 verse 28. God blessed them. Uh, Don't skip over that little phrase, God blessed them. He's smiling on them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God is smiling on them. They're safe and they can be creative. They can go out. They have a whole world to explore together. Neither Adam or Eve could do it on their own. They need one another's joyful cooperation. God commands them to go out and be fruitful. Joy, security, and curiosity. 
what I find very interesting about Genesis is that God is doing the same kind of dance that we talked about parents doing. Sometimes he comes near. Just look with me at chapter 3 and verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Sometimes he came near. Other times... He was more distant. It isn't that his love was, his love was constant, but God's doing this little dance with them. Sometimes he's near, sometimes he moves away. We discover that God places limitations on them. They can't do whatever they like. It's God as a loving parent who sets safe limits for them. Recently, um, I was exchanging some emails with a theologian I met at a conference in London. Alistair Roberts is his name. He lives in Durham. But we met in London. And uh, we've, we would, we've been discussing this very passage in relation to shame. And he wrote to me. And he said this. This is very profound. The situation in the garden was humanity in its infancy. The garden was the kindergarten within which humanity was to learn its basic lessons before it could enter into more responsibility. Do you see how this is all dovetailing? What this scene reveals is an open door. The potential is huge. Here is the opportunity for human flourishing under the loving guidance of the Father God. If you like, the accelerator's on. The car's moving forward. There's the anticipation of joy and growth. This, friends, is the scene that the ancient serpent comes into to slam on the brakes. His only desire is to shut the door in their face. And his weapon is shame. Let me just walk with you through the temptations that the devil insinuates. You, you'll know the story. I think sometimes it's so familiar that we can gloss over it. I want to just point out four things. We're not going to cover all, all things, but let me just show you four things. You, you've got them there on the outline. Uh, the first thing I want you to see is how first thing I want you to see is this idea of insignificance. The devil, first of all, cast doubt on God's word. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. He said to a woman, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? Isn't it interesting that the serpent comes to them when God isn't present? And this question is not a survey to acquire consumer information. The devil isn't interested in the facts here. He is seeking to sow doubt, and not just doubt of God's words, but a doubt about their relationship. He is seeking to undermine 
the relationship they've endured with God. At this point, Eve could have said, hey, God will be here in a minute, let's ask him. But she plows on and engages this crafty character in the garden. In verse 5, I think, this is what I want to draw your attention to. In verse 5, the serpent sticks the knife right in. Well, verse 4, you will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, often when I've thought about this encounter, I've felt that the devil is suggesting that God is somehow deficient. He's holding back on you. He's not quite what you think he is. He isn't enough for you. But I think recently I've been saying something else is present here too. What the devil is suggesting to Eve and to Adam is that God doesn't really want them to be like him. He doesn't want them to have what he has. And the suggestion here, therefore, is you're actually not as important to him as you think you are. You get that? The devil is implying subtly God doesn't love you as much as you think he does. He doesn't want you to have what he has. It's very subtle, but that is the voice of shame right there. No sin has even happened yet, but shame is right there in the garden, cynically insinuating that they are not loved as much as they thought they were. You're insignificant. The second thing I want you to notice very quickly is the idea of isolation. Something else is going on here. Notice that the serpent is very happy to have a little chat about God. But he doesn't really want them to go to God. Does he? What this conversation represents is an invitation to stand over here looking at God over there somewhere and analysing him. The devil isn't saying... Why don't you go and ask him? The devil is saying, why don't you stand over here and let's have a little look at God over there in the distance and we'll analyse him and we'll judge him. In other words, the serpent doesn't want them to be in a relationship with God. His aim is to isolate them from God and to persuade them to observe God from a distance as if, as if he were an object rather than a being. They would have done so much better if they'd stopped analysing him and actually talked to him, wouldn't they? Some of you, maybe in your heart, you're thinking, God's over there, I'm analysing him. 
Sometimes, you know, we can overthink all of that. The point is, have you gone to him? God isn't a thing to be analysed. He's a being to be related to. This is what shame does. It tempts us to doubt that we are really loved. And then it works on isolating us from God and from one another. Shame is what stops us doing the hard work of relationship. And it makes us detached and distant. There's a third thing though. Independence. See how they all begin with I? It's deliberate. Independence. If it is true that we are wired for joyful, loving relationship, the truth is that if that's undermined, we will always have to seek to replace that with something else. So the devil here is subtly encouraging the woman and the man to assert their independence. You need to do something. You need a solution. This is a call for them to satisfy their anticipation of joy somewhere else rather than in God. He can't do it. You need to go over here instead. What is remarkable here, just notice with me something that I've only seen recently. The devil says to them in verse 5, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Just think about that for a minute. He doesn't say to them, you can open your own eyes. Your eyes will be opened by someone or something else. A moment ago, all that they needed was found in God. Now the serpent encourages them to strike out on their own, but the solution is still, strangely, outside of them. It actually still requires a kind of faith. The answer is still not actually within them any more than it was before. It's still out there. But rather than being satisfied by the loving approval of a father God, it's just mysteriously out there somewhere else in the distance somewhere now. You get that? Your eyes will be open. By whom? The devil subtly tempts them to strike out in independence and to believe that their joy would come from some unspecified mysterious thing over here instead of God. And that leads on to a last I, idolatry. Friends, in the end, the suggestion here is really for them to replace the joy of relationship with an object. They lived with the assumption that they were loved. The accelerator was on. And now the door slammed in their face. They doubt whether God really loves them. 
They begin to question his goodness. They feel afraid that they're not enough. Shame slams the door shut. And the only solution that will satisfy the craving for love is a tasty looking fruit. The serpent is saying, God can't make you happy. Maybe the fruit can. Shame is saying, God doesn't love you. You're not as good as you think you are. You'd better sort this out yourself. Shame is the weapon the devil uses to slam the door right in their face. Can you see some parallels here I, I want to say all, all the things in a sense that we chase after all the things that we desire and long for are basically our attempts to put this right to satisfy the deep longing in our hearts for the smile and favour of God to be upon us again the root of all of our desires is that we want him to love us In the Old Testament, there was a prophet called Jeremiah. And God says through the prophet Jeremiah, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. That's what's going on here. They, they forsake God, the spring of life, and they try to replace him with broken systems that leak. If we don't believe that God loves us, we will always satisfy that deep yearning by looking for it somewhere else. And all the while, we're haunted by a sense of being on the outside looking in. In this way, the devil slammed the door shut. It is a car crash. The accelerator's been on, and now the brake has been applied. And shame replaces the anticipation of joy. It is a lie. Are you still with me? Oh, it's a relief. How does love respond? The whole narrative of the Bible story is that God himself comes to open the door again. For many of us, life feels like we're basically trying to barge this door down. You know what that feels like? I've tried to take a really massive run-up. My shoulder's bleeding from the number of times I've tried to barge through it to find the elusive love on the other side. I've put my whole 
life into this. I feel bruised and sore. The beautiful good news of the gospel is that God has already come and opened the door. This is a cheesy slide, but I want you to get it. Watch. Look at that. God has come and opened the door. Shame has been used as a weapon against us. Slam the door in our face. And even though we're the ones that have sinned, forsaken God, and followed all kinds of other desires, even though God has every right to be angry with us, his love has found a way to open the door and welcome us back so that we can know his smile again. The reason this can be hard for us is because deep down I think we know that God has every right to be angry with us. We fear that when we meet him he won't be smiling. We are the guilty ones who've been duped into misjudging him and swapping him for other things that are less valuable than him. But God has found a way to turn his anger away from us so that he can smile again. There's a wonderful allusion to this in Genesis at the end of chapter 3. Adam and Eve found themselves outside the garden. What must that have felt like for them to be on the outside with the door shut? The regret, the shame, the longing to turn the clock back. What were we thinking? We just want to get back. But at the end of chapter 3, there's a very interesting picture because God places on the door of the Garden of Eden an angel with a flaming sword. What a picture that is. This is not just a locked door. The picture is one of an angel there with a massive sword going, if they wanted to get back in, they've got no chance. The agony of being outside and the nearer you get, the more danger there is of you being slashed to pieces. But hang on. Just look down the years of history and a great hero appears on the horizon. And he comes and he walks past Adam and Eve towards the garden. And you stare in astonishment as this hero keeps on walking. The fiery sword is flashing backwards and forwards and with a look of sheer determination, this hero walks right into it. And you wince. As he is completely obliterated by the sword. 
But when you look up, the sword is gone. It has spent its fury on him. And the door's open. This is the story of the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has taken our place. In the Old Testament, there's a verse that says this. I'll paraphrase it for you. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds are we healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sins have been dealt with by God himself. Do you want to know how much you matter? Do you want to know how much you are loved? Do you want to know how much you mean to him? Do you know how to measure his love for you? Look at the cross where Jesus died for you. This is where the epic battle reaches its great pinnacle. This is where shame meets love head on. This is the place where shame tries to slam the door. And love wrestles it open again. This is the place where the blackest lying devil has done his worst. But where a loving God has done better. In the end, love triumphed over shame's lies. Hey, we're nearly done. If you are not a Christian, perhaps you feel deep down in your heart that you've been knocking on this very door for as long as you can remember. The door is open right now for you to come in. Do it. Deep down, you've perhaps feared God. But now... You can enjoy the smile of a heavenly, loving Father who delights in you. You can know the present joy and the anticipated glory of bringing pleasure to the one your heart now loves. Don't just watch it. Go through the door. Do it now. And if you are a Christian, you you can probably tell I have so much more to say. (laughs) And time has gone. I hope you can see 
that I've tried to frame this whole subject in this way because I do not want you to live in the shadows and lies of shame. My heart's desire is for your heart to be nourished by the love of God shown to you in Christ, his son. The thing about shame is that it's always trying to stop things. But love is always on the move. So, don't be on the outside looking in. Do not give in in your life to the narrative, the lies of shame that are only designed to paralyze you and isolate you and distance you. Lift up your weary head and feel his delight and pleasure over you. Know that you are secure in his love and let that love spare you on. To be curious and to take risks. To get involved with life here. To serve him and to serve other people with gladness. Don't give in to the lies of shame. Let your heart be nourished by love. As our musicians come up, we're going to close with a prayer, but I'd like you to turn to it with me. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 3. If you've got one of the red Bibles, it's on page 1174. Here is a scripture for all of you to take away. This is how shame dies and the door opens. Listen, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God.